This is Melissa, and today is the 3rd of March, 2024. I hope that you are all well, and that the feedback that I hear in my ear as I'm speaking isn't coming through on the recording. I did test a little bit, and it seems okay, but uh, unfortunately, an old laptop that I used to record audio on died last uh, week, just moments before I was due to record with Johnny on Dynamic Independence, so that didn't happen. And I do have a newer, really good desktop that I hadn't been using for the recordings, and so I'm just getting that set up, and things are a little bit different, and I hope it turns out okay. I did rescue the hard drive on the laptop, and that was the main thing, so that's good, and that is the way of equipment. This last period of time that I've been away from my routine has been good, in many ways a blessing um, that Diana, my friend, was able to come here and help me, and I have just enjoyed, I enjoyed really getting to know her and spending time with her, but also we just did this mammoth project that was huge physical work, you know, day in and day out for two solid weeks of 
going through parents' things, getting those hauled out and just keeping what needed to be kept and then bringing my own things in from the shed and settling into a, a livable situation because I had been years in a situation that was just <laughs> not great. And and that was good. It feels really good now in this space. I feel that there are things I'll be able to accomplish because it's not so chaotic. I had spent the month prior to her getting here really going through the, my parents' things that I knew she wouldn't be able to make decisions about. So it wasn't just the heavy lifting, but she had a lot of creative input as to how things could work better. So I really appreciated that. This last period of time, it was a, a, a mixed bag. Sadly, a cousin of mine passed away and she and I had been planning a, a reunion for our generation. And we had wanted to do that before Christmas and she wanted to push it closer to Thanksgiving because she wanted, you know, she felt her mother's health was really failing and wanted to combine, you know, her mother's birthday and all that uh, with the reunion. But unfortunately, my mother's side of the family, that we, uh, there are some heart issues that seem to trouble quite a few of us. I, and, and knock wood, I seem to have a good, strong heart. But my cousin passed away about two and a half weeks ago after having surgery that went well, but when they were transferring her after a month in intensive care, they were to send her into long-term care, and she coded on the way. And so that's a sad loss for the family, and that happened. But it, it brings to mind something that I have thought about a lot since Alan passed away, and we're coming up on, on that anniversary tomorrow, three years since he is gone. And just last week, someone shared, it's really kind of a proverb, but out of the Psalms in the Christian Bible. And there's a whole section there on the anger and the wrath of God. And that was one thing that Alan commented from time to time that sometimes it felt like the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New were different, but it's just that the New Testament is also called the Good News. So this proverb is, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And in many ways that has been with me on my mind since Alan's passing that I never want to lose that immediate sensation of the temporal nature of life, that it is, it is short and at any moment can end. And so with dedication and commitment, we do the best that we can in every single moment. But Alan wasn't big on anniversaries or celebrations of birthdays or anything like that. We celebrated Christmas, he thought was worth celebrating that birth. But I would sneak in things like 
and just special food on his birthday, which I'm not going to share the date with you because he never did, so. <laughs> but I would make something and from time to time, like a meat pie or just, you know, something that I, I thought he would like. And one year I thought, well, he's Scottish and I've never made scones. I'll make some scones. So I did, and then I served them to him with some tea, and he ate the first one. He said, well, that's good. What is it? <laughs> I said, well, it's a scone. He said, oh, it's not a scone. It was good, but it's not a scone. I, I think I got better at scones, but uh, there you go. So it's... Cleaning out, making a space has been a bittersweet time because there's a lot of thinking about Alan and loss and missing him. And yet with, with me always is this is, is that he's here. And I qualify that as that, no, I don't do a seance or have a medium or try to summon him down. It, it, it's, he's not here in the room that I can see him. But I, I know what he would think about what I say or what I do. I know what he would say or how he would react in any given situation. And so he is very much really here with me. But it does, I, I do think about life after death. And I do think about meaning and purpose and what we're here for. And I know that in Alan's books, and I've mentioned this before, you know, he said the questions about eternal life were answered eons ago. We have a priesthood who wants to occlude truth from us. That is the evil nature of the work. And for me, the good news is there is something beyond here. So I've been thinking about things like that. Alan told me one time about when he was a teenager. I'm not sure how old he would have been, but I'm think according to the elements of the story that he was 16 and maybe headed towards 17, but I think he was about 16. And he had a friend who was experiencing a number of very uncomfortable paranormal activities in his home and not just in his home, but that seemed to follow him. But Primarily, much of the activity was happening in this young man's bedroom. And he took Alan over there, and sure enough, things manifested. And Alan's not, he wasn't one that was given to exaggeration or saying something that, you know, and as he says in this talk that I'm going to put up today, an untruth. And he saw a chair just fly around the room and paintings or, you know, pictures that were hung on the wall just drop down off the wall onto the ground and some violent activity like you'd see in a Hollywood movie. 
he and his friend had sought answers for what was going on, they had gone to see a Catholic priest, and they didn't get any help there. They told him what was going on, and, you know, Alan relayed the story to me in great detail, and it, you know, it took him about half an hour to tell it, and I won't give you all of the details, but to say that after weeks and weeks and weeks of these phenomena happening, Alan and his friend ended up, they they found, through the advice of that they sought, a Christian spiritualist pastor, and they went to visit him. And this pastor didn't try to summon any spirits or, you know, bring them in contact with the dead or anything, but he just had a very unique way of viewing the world, which Alan said was very much grounded in Christianity. And I say that because when you look up spiritualism or Christian spiritualism, you will find it asserted that these two are antithetical. And Alan, of course, knew that. And he wasn't making a judgment about it. He simply said that this particular minister was very helpful to them. And he prayed with Alan and his friend and gave them some advice of things to do that mostly involved prayer. And the minister did end up coming to the young man's home, into the room, and praying. And it was not an exorcism that he held, but it, it was really just blessing the room and the young man. And these manifestations, these paranormal manifestations, ceased. Interestingly, Alan told me that later, much later after the paranormal activity had ceased, the young man discovered that his ex-girlfriend, they had broken up, and he discovered later that she had become a witch. <laughs> I mean, there's no other way to say it. She and her teenage friends had formed a coven. They had researched this, so she was into Wicca. And the girlfriend had put a series of curses on him. This came out later. And Alan, you know, it, it, ultimately his friend didn't particularly come to a good end. He got involved in drugs and alcohol, and you know, those seemed to be separate choices, that, um, independent of the curses that his witch girlfriend put on him. But anyway, I say all of this because nothing in life is really what we think it is at a, at a glance we uncover more and more. And another thing, you know, that Alan was fond of pointing out to me was that um, Arthur Conan Doyle, who created the Sherlock Holmes character, was also into spiritualism. And he, you know, if you read it from a Catholic point of view, because he was raised Catholic, you know, they feel very sorry for him that he broke away from the faith of Catholicism into this. He seemed to gravitate towards this back in the 1880s, 
He became a member of the British Society for Psychical Research, and I've mentioned before that, interestingly, Arthur Balfour was also a member of that group. This seemed to be kind of the trend, something that people were into at the time, but one thing that Alan pointed out was that even though he was already involved in this, Doyle, he lost his son during World War One, and that really seemed to up his involvement in this and his sense of urgency that he would talk to people about life after death and spirits. Alan, again, with his characteristic, I don't want to say it was non-judgmental, but Alan's characteristic Let's examine this. Let's take a look at what we're seeing and let's not just shut it down out of hand. He said, World War I was a horror that had never been seen before. And the loss of life was so monumental and profound across many, many countries and people who had had traditional religion for generations felt that everything that they believed, everything that they had been taught was either wrong or not complete, not satisfying. And many people did turn to other ways of thinking because they felt that their own institutions had failed them in a huge way. And it's been said by more than one thinker and writer, I believe even Peter Hitchens said that um, the loss of faith after World War I in Britain was profound and pronounced. War is a horror that is hard to explain in purely human terms, particularly the wars that we've seen in the 20th century into the 21st. Even when you know the players and you know the planning and and the intergenerational planning, it's hard to arrive at and sit with a purely intergenerational planning explanation for the horrific things that we have witnessed. Another thing that Alan would joke with me about from time to time, and he, it, it was a joke, but the way that he said it was, you know, there, that they say when there's truth behind the joke, and I would say, oh, I don't, I, I, I won't want to go on without you, you know. And he told me that the, in India there was a tradition, there had been a tradition when the head of the household, when the man passed away, that a funeral pyre would be built and he, for him to be burned upon and that his wife would, I guess, be burned alive on that pyre and, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to laugh at that, but, but it, it, you know, the, the joke that Alan would make was that that's, that's what could happen with me, therefore I could go on with him. And 
he didn't seem to think that was a bad idea. I kind of understood that, you know, I did. I understood, I, I've understood that increasingly over the last few years because loss is sometimes inexplicable and contrary to what many people will say about the process, particularly when you don't sit with common ways of thinking and you aren't trying to adapt yourself to the status quo and the way uh, society says that you should be or says that you should think. In other words, when you don't think it's just the greatest thing that you should be adjusted to this system and this world. Well, my own experience of sitting just outside the system seemed to be a growing estrangement from life. And I received a letter, I, I just mentioned him on The Real History that I did with Diana from a long-time listener named Prince. And he said, this was in the fall when I was having the skin cancer issue, he said, Melissa, I'm sorry to hear you're not feeling well. Please get better, take care of yourself, chill out, be your own champion. You have much more work to do. This is an endless battle. Life and the battle doesn't end here. Alan gave many, many talks on who and what we are battling with. He gave us bottom line. Some of the talks, and he went on to list a few of them, and I think I'll probably just put those up in the video there. Uh, maybe half a dozen talks there. He said there are many more. Bottom line. So the bottom line, who and what are we battling? And I later talked to Prince, and he was giving me the same kind of encouragement. You know, you have work to do. And I remember saying something. I don't remember exactly what I said, but the the effect was, ah, I don't care. It was kind of my funeral pyre moment. And Prince said, well, that's up to you. But I do think that you have work to do. And so the last few weeks, you know, that is my coming to terms with, yes, I do have work to do. I didn't get the funeral pyre. I am here. And that sense of loss, as much as Alan is always in the room with me, always in my head, that loss is real. It doesn't go away and it really doesn't get better. It's just there. But Alan was fond of talking to me about, yes, for some, for some, based on the choices that are made in this life, there is something beyond. Whither away, my bonny maid? Say late and say far in the gloaming. 
the mist gathers grey On moorland and brave Oh, whither say far are you roaming? Oh, you'll take the high road and I'll take the low I'll be in Scotland afore For me and my true love will never meet again By the bonny, bonny banks of Loch Lomond I trusted my ain love last night in the broom my Donald, what loves me so dearly? For the morrow he will march for Edinburgh too. Take thank for his king and prince Charlie. Oh, he'll I weep for yestreen in my sleep. We stood bright and bridegroom together, but his arms and his breath were as cold as the death, and his head's blood run red in. Oh, you'll take the high road and I'll take the low. I'll be in Scotland afore For me and my true love will never meet again by the bonny, bonny banks. As dauntless in battle as tender in love, he'd yield ne'er a foot to the foeman, but never again. Tray the field or the slain To his myra will he come by Loch The thistle may bloom The king hay his aim and fond lovers will meet in the gloaming, and me and my true love will yet meet again. Far above the bonny banks all of Take the high road and I'll take the low. 
I'll be in Scotland afar For me and my true love will never meet again By the bonny, bonny banks all along Coincidences. I like it when something I'm reading or thinking about dovetails with something else. And I had this little thing from Isaiah that I had found amongst my mother's possessions. It said, But those who trust the Lord will find new strength. They will be strong like eagles soaring upward on wings. They will walk and run without getting tired. So I had been thinking about that for several weeks since I found it. And in moving things around and settling in and making my space make sense, be more organized, and just going through things and everything had to be checked, every pocket every nook and cranny. What am I looking at? What do I find? And Alan was one for notebooks, but he was also one for scraps of paper. And if a little snippet, a thought, a poem, a stanza popped into his head, that might be on a scrap of paper. And here's one I found just last week. Faith held my heart, whilst doubt clawed and tore. Faith was the freedom by which eagles did soar. Whilst death mocked fool, alone you will die. But I knew death was promise. Life was the lie. And that's it. I thought the last line may be the most profound thing I've ever read. It's beautiful. But I knew death was promise. Life was the lie. And he used that word faith twice. I think about faith and the way that people talk about faith as being belief. Like, oh, I just choose to believe that. You can believe in fairies as... Arthur Conan Doyle did. You can believe in anything. You can believe anything. 
but what do you know? What is a fact? What is a fact to you? And another thing about Alan was it only had to make sense to you. Another way of defining faith is not just a belief or belief with strong conviction, but a complete trust. That means if you have complete trust, then you know. And I always thought that was how Alan viewed faith. You know. Purpose comes with not getting on the funeral pyre and I'm still here and what am I supposed to do? Well, I've had this break from routine and I know that there are many things that that I need to do, that I want to do. And I feel that this reorganization is going to bring me to a higher level of production in part because there are listeners amongst you who also have projects and things that you're doing and I'm going to be sure to allow time to whatever that whatever that needs is it encouragement is it help is it the promotion of something that you're working on that you want to share with other listeners so your support will continue to be important and necessary and your support isn't just it's not necessarily financial support um, it can also be the things that you decide to take on as you get a conviction that there is something that you can do to share your knowledge with other people. That, I think, probably concludes the thoughtful portion of what I had to say today. Um... The talk that I chose to go up is a the first portion of a talk that Alan gave on November 8, 2020. And I'm going to say right here, this is not for YouTube slash Google. So I'm not even sure I can give you five minutes of this talk. Not as I've said before, not every talk is right for every venue. So please, if you're a subscriber to that channel, look elsewhere for this content. This was almost a six-hour talk that Alan gave. Here's the poem that went with it. Farm for sale. Witness crumbling of empire, tired and spent. Military might overextended across the world. Floating people ask where the power all went, since the flag still flutters free, unfurled. Martial tunes and songs still sound the same, yet cohesive unity is frayed and fragmented. Floating people are programmed. Who to blame? Internal fury and rage from the discontented. And here's the parenthetical at the end of that poem floating people, those who live in superficial reality, never diving beneath waves of consciousness to find the beast 
which, with every calculated movement of its mind and body, causes ripples and currents which move all predetermined changes in human affairs. It's a good talk, it's a long talk, and I am not quite sure where I'll be cutting this first segment. There is a lot in the first hour that I like, even though at the end of the first hour, Alan said, well, I've been talking an hour and I haven't even started. He talked about Plato and he talked about tyranny and tyrannical leaders and how they're supplied and when they're supplied and the excuse under which they're, we're here to help you, we're here to save you. I remember that I got into a very heated uh, discussion that turned so heated that my boss had to interrupt it and pull me apart from a co-worker because right after 9-11, I flew somewhere. And when I got back to the office, I remarked that the only time I had seen armed military at an airport was in a communist country, and my co-worker was, you know, well, they have to do something, these terrorists, these Arabs, you know, and it just got heated, you know, because he took the position, we're in the dialectic, right? So his position in the dialectic was that we must give up some rights in order to be safe and secure. And my position on the dialectic was, I'd rather die then give up freedom. So here we are, we're playing our parts in the dialectic, and it got quite heated. And that was before I had heard of Alan Watt and knew even what the dialectic was. We are known, we are studied, and we are played for fools. So in the news today, to go along with this talk, um, the first thing I noticed is that there's a trend towards shorter winters. Oh dear, climate change, climate change. We'll mention briefly before I get into some of the articles that I had been completely away from the book club and the book club chat. And I'll say Adam and David are planning on recording something on this segment called The Buffer Fringe, but they're both a bit behind on their reading and just to have scheduling issues, etc. So it'll probably be mid-month before their recording happens. There is something that Alan said about Quigley in this talk, but there were somebody else that he mentioned in this segment that I'm going to put up, and it reminded me of some reading in the Buffer Fringe that I had discovered. And I think I may just post a little comment in the chat section there, a little voice message for the people who are on Telegram in the chat, and I may post it elsewhere, but it won't be too long because, as Darren and I said, we, Adam and David, fortunately, are doing the heavy lifting on this one. But the one aside that I wanted to say about Book Club and that chat is that there has been an enormous amount of really good and useful and interesting things that have been posted in the nearly three weeks that I've been away, and a couple of things that I wanted to point out are, there were some bits there, Um, one person had posted a video, this was 
shoot, it's leaving my head right now who the British, I'm just going to look it up really quick here. UK column, sorry, Brian Garish. So Brian Garish was speaking with someone named Justin Walker who was telling the story of the Bradbury Pound and fraudulent banking. And I thought that was a really interesting thing. Again, what I'm saying is that there's a lot of interesting back and forth on the Tragedy and Hope book club chat. And this was just one example of something that I found useful. And it reminded me of a documentary that Alan had posted years ago, and I'm also going to link to that, called O Canada, Our Bought and Sold Out Land. Because what Justin Walker was describing to Brian Garish about the Bradbury Pound and uh, about true wealth was were similar issues that were brought up in the movie O Canada. I also want to say that when you talk about true wealth, because where the money system, as Alan has pointed out forever, is based on a con, so it's really hard to talk about money in any way that isn't tainted, right? Another interesting thing that I saw in the book club chat was a clip where Elon Musk was talking about universal basic income. This is really good. It's worth hearing. One of the things that he said is it's inevitable. He's not necessarily saying it's a good thing, but it's inevitable. And because of robotics and AI, things, commodities are going to be so cheap that they'll be easily affordable for everyone. And I just want to say that's a lie. <laughs> uh, so there you go. But there was something in Zero Hedge about Musk and his latest thing, which is a breach of contract lawsuit regarding the, uh, quote, foundational mission, end quote, of open AI. And the comments were what was most interesting here because one commenter said, oh, Musk is just an actor, you know, he's a player, etc., etc." And somebody else said, he's a financial genius, you deny that. And there's this back and forth. And it reminded me of something that Alan said in this talk, which is essentially, what level of corruption are we willing to tolerate? And so many of us at the bottom look up at those at the top and say, well, I would do that. Or, or you know, for a billionaire, he's a pretty good guy. You know, he's for free speech and blah, blah, blah. There cannot be a billionaire financial genius or an actor who had everything given to him who is not absolutely tainted if not completely and vilely corrupted by being a player in such a system and that's the one thing Alan never lost sight of was always pointing out but we worship money we worship those who have it and um there you go.
Otherwise, in the news, I had read earlier in the week that Israel and Hamas were going to have a ceasefire, and then we've got the IDF open fire into the people who were clamoring for food supplies. One thing that I read about the food crisis, first of all, the head of the UN said that that Gaza accounts for 80% of the 700,000 hungriest people in the world. We're talking about the humanitarian aid. It was interesting to me that one of the things that people were clamoring for was the flour because they needed to bake bread. It's said that residents in northern Gaza say that they've taken to searching piles of rubble and garbage for anything to feed their children who barely eat one meal a day. Many families have begun mixing animal and bird food with grain to bake bread. International aid officials say that they have encountered catastrophic hunger. Uh, This is such a colossal tragedy. Biden said that he thought that this latest, the IDF firing into the people who were there to get their food aid, would complicate ceasefire talks. And I just thought to myself, you think? Yeah, I would think that would make it more difficult. But so we're told, okay, so it didn't happen last week. They're still heading towards ceasefire talks. But ceasefire talks don't mean and a cessation. It just means, okay, we're, we're going to sit quiet here for a while. So Farm for Sale was the name of Alan's, the title of Alan's poem. When you look up food shortages or farming, etc., anywhere you look in the world, whether it's Africa or Europe, there are many reasons given for potential food shortages or real-time food shortages. Every area has a, a different thing going on. Here in Texas, we are having wildfires, which they are saying are the worst in the state's history. This is from yesterday. It said, the largest wildfire in Texas history has devastated the state's agriculture, blazing through more than a million acres of land in the panhandle, killing thousands of livestock, destroying crops, and gutting infrastructure. The agriculture industry, a big driver of the state's economy, was already facing pressures from prolonged and widespread drought that forced ranchers to manage smaller herds, contributing to a decrease in beef production nationally. The series of wildfires in the panhandle this week is another blow as many ranchers tried to rebuild their herds and operations during the cooler months of the year. Over 85% of the state's cattle population is located on ranches in the panhandle, according to the Texas Department of Agriculture. They don't know yet how many cattle were lost in the fires, a couple of human lives as well. But they do know that ranchers will face significant economic pressure from the damage. And we know that um, meatless uh, future is one that is envisioned. Another thing that Alan talked about was 
the great reset. What is the great reset and how does it affect us? And I want you to just consider when you're listening to this section that though certain elements have calmed down or receded into the background since he recorded this in 2020, what was achieved, what Alan was talking about would be achieved in the minds of those who are implementing these great changes, this great reset, this is, this has happened because one of the things that we collective, the collective we, let our rulers know clearly was that we are, are very willing to give up our rights for safety and security. This was not a dress rehearsal, although it could be considered a dress rehearsal for something even bigger. But it was actually real-time implementation of major, major changes. Another thing that I saw in the book club chat was a little snippet of Fink, who is the CEO of BlackRock, was talking about tokenization of financial assets as the next step. So that's an interesting bit that I will put up for you to look at. I'm also going to try to find something that I can supply a screenshot from the book club chat of an interview that someone named Greg Hunter did with Catherine Austin Fitz. And she's reiterating something that Alan said in this talk about slavery as she is talking about tokens and a credit system and the end of currency as we know it. So I think I've chatted quite long enough and I'm sorry for that. You'll be interested in Alan's talk and again for those of you who are on channels where I cannot play much if any of his words, I do hope that you'll seek it out in other sources. And I just want to say <laughs> that since I didn't get to get on the funeral pyre, I am here with a sense of loss that I know will always be with me. But it is true. I have work to do. I'm completely committed to it. All my work really is is just pointing to Alan's work as the source of many profound explanations for the world that we live in and why it is the way that it is. So I hope you all have a good week and I'll um, be back with you on Thursday talking to Elmer who is from Norway living in Thailand and has made some documentary films and has got, I've never spoken with him before and I won't speak to him until I record this, but I know that he is an interesting fellow who communicated with Alan for a long time. So take a look at the website and all of the different links that I will post to go along with this section of Alan's talk. Thank you. 
Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 8th of November 2020. And, and time, I, I, I just can't get over how time flies. I think, with me anyway, it reminds me of school. School, I hated school. It was boring. And I think a lot of children thought the same way too. And so much of your history and all that was to do with another country that really did. And nothing to do with you really, except you're in subjugation at one point. And I hate to even say country because it's not a country. We're ruled by a central city and called London, the city of London. And so was the rest of England too and Wales and Northern Ireland. All ruled from this, this amazing sovereign city, eh? with its own laws and regulations, and even the Queen supposedly has yet permission to go in to visit, because it's a sovereign power, with its uh, Egyptian obelisk that was brought over there, planted beside the four main banks. But, but again, I was thinking there too, though, it's like school, right? Because on Friday, you felt great. Because a school came out and you'd rush off your home or somewhere, go out and play or whatever. And you had a whole, and, and those days too, remember time lasted a long time because so much, so much that you saw was fascinating to you. You're constantly learning outside of school. That's where you did all your learning really. And uh, if you lived anywhere near the country, you can go into the country areas and climb trees or jump over little streams and uh, great fun or, or, or go fishing, things like that. And the day would really take a long time to pass. It was terrific. You know, that was that's what life is supposed to be about. It was like that. But the thing is, you get Saturday. And it was so okay on Saturday. It was wonderful. And you get that little bit of trepidation when it was getting towards evening. You know, and you think, oh, well, tomorrow's Sunday. That means that the next day will be Monday. You're back at school. And sure enough, on Sunday, one case, it's a Sunday night. There you go. You try and make that. You stretch out the hours. As best before you fell asleep, because you knew when you woke up you'd have to go to school, and, and that's what's like now, isn't it? To, to do with everything that happens with uh, with the COVID lockdowns, all pre-planned, of course, and you can see their old scripts already, which they had published years ago, and how they'd manage it all and all this kind of thing. And I always say you're living through a script anyway. And I said at the beginning that this COVID idea that. Uh, this would be permanent, basically. It was written in stone. I said, it's chiseled in stone. Nothing's going to change it. The whole, the whole world is to be on board with it. And that's what's happening. You, you can't get, in, in a real, any real situation, you could never get a 100% of the nations on board with it, with all the, the same so-called leaders and their democracies, as I like to call them, on board with it, and their health advisors all on board with it. You'd, you'd always get other dissenting opinions in higher places, but that's not happening, which tells you that we're all placed in the right places initially for this thing to happen. And they could take it over and all run in unison, lockstep as they call it, across the world. Because this changed the world, isn't it? The Great Reset from Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum. Uh, who told us quite, you'd be quite happy uh, living, you know, living with far less material goods and so on. You know, he's, they've already decided where they're going to take you. Understand where the Great Reset, and they were giving us all the clues for years and years and years. 
under the guise of climate change, and you've got to cut back and go into austerity. And I gave these talks years. It's like deja vu. It's like repetition, repetition. It's all literally Groundhog Day over and over and over for me. Because I, I, even the immunity passport idea, I came up with that back in the nineties as well. So eventually, you won't go, you won't go anywhere without your some kind of identification to show you've had all your vaccinations up to date, and electronic tagging and so on. And I said you've gone to grocery stores to get food because you all need food, and alarms will go off if, if it recognises that you, you don't have uh, your valid um, up to date passport or your vaccinations, and it's all here. You're living through a script. And you are living through a script. This is, if you look at the League of Nations, 1919, formed at the end of World War One or after World War One. again, under, everything's done to, for your good and benefit. Just, just up another major war, they said, right? And that the same institutions all set up, like a, a health authority for the world and all that. And, and you have to look at, the, and I read this stuff years ago on the radio show, they, they had lots of uh, ideas about the coming vaccine schedules they'd have for all everybody, children, right, right through adulthood, birthday, death. Back in 1919, they came out with this kind of stuff. And they've been trying ever since to get the public to, to be pincushions and, and the recipients of mandated uh, corporate vaccinations, you know, private business, eh? which is a great business to be in if government, a true fascist government isn't on board with it. And you call it fascist or communism, they're both fascist really, both socialist, meaning government and big corporations work together uh, under the pretense of helping you for your own good. But if they mandate uh, that you must take their product and your government mandates it by law or an imprisonment and fines and all that, then that, that's no free society at all. Hmm? So it's, uh, yeah, they'd all, they, 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 they actually said that they'd have lifelong vaccinations and boosters and all that done through the time. And here we are. And of course, but again, the greatest tyrannies are always presented, and they're saving you. We're here to save you. And that's what they called the tyrants in Rome. Sometimes you had tyrants who were, that were pretty decent at what they did, because eh? a tyrant didn't have a really bad, bad name. Some were bad, but a lot weren't bad. But the idea was, here's, here's the Republic of Rome. And it's, it's gone so far off kilter as a republic by power-hungry freaks in the Senate and so on, who were grabbing land for themselves by disenfranchising farmers and so on, that occasionally uh, you'd have to bring in, a, a general would stand up and sit to his army, we're, we're taking over Rome because because it's, it's lawless now. If they don't follow the law they're supposed to be under, then it's not it's not what you think it is after, it's not the republic anymore. Same as in the US, you know. And and they bring in a tyrant, and he would rule like a dictator. And you better obey him, or else it's martial law time. And he'd try to get things back on kilter. And some of them were pretty good, as I say. They would actually grab the land back from all the senators that stolen it from the farmers, and and uh, dealt with the senators in the proper fashion. And uh, can restore law and order to an extent back to a working system again. If, when the, those at the top don't follow the laws, you see, you're in an un, unlawful society. 
and anything goes then. We're seeing that today. We've seen it for a long, long time, actually. It just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, but uh, under the guise of it's for your own good, sometimes you get a bad tyrant who would come in who was really just in it for the power for himself. And uh, but it's, it's always a technique that's used. And many, many top uh, philosophers from long, long ago uh, and up to recent time too, but uh, top philosophers mentioned it too. If tyranny ever comes, it will be under the guise of saving you from something. And just to help you, you understand. That's the only way you can give up rights is when you're terrified and and they say we're here to help you. Yeah? It's quite easy, isn't it? And if you have enough people on board together, which isn't hard when you when you have a, a corrupt system worldwide where everybody has thrown everything else out the window, every law, every religion, basically the tenant of religion out the window and you've been living in a in a, a materialistic society for such a long time, where greed is good, uh, like Milton Friedman said, and he taught that greed is good, uh, then all the barriers, again, you, you couple that with Nietzsche, and you say, well, all the barriers that kept um, totalitarian systems coming forward and creating a living hell are out the window. You can do anything you want, you see, once you have not no moral uh, guidance to go by. In fact, the old religions, which were pretty much the same when you look at the, the rights of the people uh, done through time, and uh, they were fought hard for, by the people, by the way, even in religion, the religious society, that they fight to get those rights. And uh, But now they've been replaced by front people, the persuaders, you understand, you're persuaded to do everything and to give up your rights and freedoms. So you, you do it by giving them fancy titles or and little courses at university, and you call them ethics uh, experts and bioethics experts as well. And they then interpret what's good for the humans because you use scientific principles, you see. And, of course, they're all funded and paid for by the big global corporations that run universities uh, to decide what kind of culture they want to be taught to future leaders. That's what universities are really for today. Uh, they, they give a, a culture to, to train. I mean, that, that's not new. I mean, Elihu Yale, I think it was Yale, in, in his, when he founded the Yale University, said that, that really the purpose of it was to, to, to ensure the proper values would be taught to future leaders, etc. And that's what it's always really been, you know. And, um, of course, now you have the skull and bones as well, <laughs> which is rather telling with its own war room. But, uh, but yeah, you, you're dealing with a system that's very old. Sometimes if the politicians, who are naturally corrupt, I, I personally believe that. I think that only the really corrupt people go into politics, the psychopathic types. And, and they're up for the highest bidder too today. It's very evident of the big corporations that fund them to run in politics. And before they go into politics, many of them, especially in the higher realms of medicine and food, etc., and chemical companies, uh, were heads of the board. They were on the boards, sometimes the CEOs, the chairman of some of these corporations. Then they take seats in the FDA, Food and Drug Administration in the States. And other things, and the equivalents in other countries too. 
and they're back and forth like musical chairs, making laws that uh, the corporations they that they work for can easily uh, pass under the under the wire, basically. So it's very corrupt and openly corrupt. And the lobbying, I mean, government, as I say, is just there for money. It gets your money, it takes your money from you. Government doesn't produce, produce money, it takes money from the people that it pretends to represent. And it's a very thin pretense these days, and for a long, long time, actually. And then it also dishes out money and grants to universities, then... Uh, work for, uh, for public-private enterprise, investigative uh, science, research and development for the big corporations, and then they hand out all their findings over the corporations, including the big pharma companies and the vaccine companies at times too, and uh, and genetics and all that kind of stuff, and hand it over, and um, they get it for pretty well nothing. You know, they put the patent on it. You know, the universities have all been paid off, and, and no doubt there's big gifts given to professors and so on. I think everything is so openly corrupt, really, in this day and age. I really think it is. And uh, with the top goes the bottom, because the people at the bottom always accept that kind of corruption. Uh, if they don't complain about it, then it means that they themselves at the bottom are corrupt as well. So things at the top get worse and worse and worse. That's how we, at least to say, that's how you tolerate corruption. It depends how corrupt the people at the bottom become. And the more you become, the more, the more, less indignant you'll be naturally. And you'll hear that often said, well, well, if I was up there, I'd be doing this, I'd be filling my pockets too. That's what you'll hear. So there's no hope for that kind of society, you know. So for a long, long time, we've been living under the scientific tyranny and it's getting more and more evident now. And their pretenses of science too, because the computer is a fantastic tool. Uh, they've trained everybody that somehow the computer doesn't lie, and that it's a better brain, uh, metaf- you know, metaphorically speaking, than humans. But because it can't tell lies, but all it can do is spout off info that's fed into it. And they used to give uh, demonstrations of that years ago, according to the. You know, data they wanted for the climate, uh, for the climate agreement, they had much, but they wanted to spew into it. And the terrifying things that were, oh my god, the world will be dry as a bone by the year 2020. And we'd all be dying of thirst and so on. And of course, Al Gore and the rest of them would use these kind of statistics. And he said years ago too, that eventually, I can't remember the year you said it would be, it was long past, but he said that, uh, the children will wonder what snow was when you tell them what snow was. They can't imagine it because there won't be no more, no more snow. And uh, I, I can tell you that's an untruth. That's the terms they use, the untruth, not not lies. But because every winter here is, is, has got heavier and heavier for the last few winters, in fact. There's no lack of snow anywhere. Not up here in North Ontario. But again, it's, it's fantastic when you can get someone with a white I don't wear the white coats on when they stand next to computers, you know. Because you're brainwashed to believe that's what the expert wears. And they'll stand there and tell you what the computer's spewed out and why you must follow its, its predictions. You see, it can't lie. As they have this little cheesy grin on their faces, as they tell you. But that's what the current system we live in. It's corrupt. And the agenda, even for the climate change, was always to reduce the population numbers across on the world. And bring in again, but Bertrand Russell and others 
would refer to sometimes as a technotronic society and a technocratic society. Technotronic too was a term that Brzezinski used, Zygmunt Brzezinski. The, the technotronic era, again run by experts and, and all the high-tech wizardry, they could literally alter people's brainwave patterns, as he said in his book Between Two Ages. And the chapter was called The Technotronic Era. So in the 1970s, when he wrote his book, the testing had already been done on a lot of the kind of standing wave and extremely low frequency technology. And they found that, that very low intensity signals would affect the human brain uh, very, very efficiently. And, they could, and he said they could actually people, make people alter their behavior through technotronic means and blanket the whole continents with these waves, eh? So they were being tested out in different areas and, and well understood. But you had that with a technocratic society where you've got uh, people um, being told to obey, obey and obey. Uh, the true socialist kind of society, the kind of society that H.G. Uh, Wells and George Bernard Shaw envisaged where you'd have a, a hierarchy of, again, specialists. You'll do it with religion and and you do away with religious morality and again replace it with ethicists, you know, out of universities who'll, who'll work with law to see how they can change the law to bring in their regimes of the new ethics which would tend to justify what the elite were doing in the corporate level. Uh, so, so it's a fantastic way to, to justify tyranny, you know, very, it's very persuasive, you see. And that's how you manage the general public. You don't have to t- hit them head on. And, uh, and say disobey, obey, you can bring forth lots of, of uh, newly qualified people with new kinds, kinds of degrees. He'll give a lot of gobbledygook, be really impressive, and get you to submit voluntarily, you know. There was a guy in Britain, I mentioned him before, I can't remember his name, I know his face actually, <laughs> because he used to come on television now and then. And he would be presented as professor so and so, and whatever topic it was, he was he was the professor, and he would come on, and he would literally be asked a question by the by the an interview, the the, the, the the comedic interview, about whatever it was, the big topic of the day, and he would just give a lot of very very persuasive technological jargon, gobbledygook back, and they made up lots of new terms and words and so on, but it sounded very impressive. So much so, you, you, would, you would like this guy, you see, you wouldn't like the people who tell you, especially if it's a, if it's a tyrannical system they're pushing, you would not like them, say, well, it's not too bad, you know, and um, maybe he wants to take more rights away, but he has to do it to help us and save us, and this guy was awfully persuasive, and he used to have him an occasional comedy show as well, he'd do his little, his little act. But that's what you have today. You have all these, these bioethicists and ethicists coming forth who've already worked, and, and some of them have got law degrees as well, you see, so that on behalf of the corporations and the government agencies that work in a global governmental agency, as far as I'm concerned, you know. And we have for a long time, but uh, they all work together and on the same agenda that was written long, long ago to gradually do away, like the Club of Rome said, but the idea of democracy, too inefficient, can't get things done.
because you have to cater to individual rights. And it's much better to have a collectivist society where you just tell them what, what's going to happen and that's it, or else. And, and train them into it. You can be trained into any kind of living, you see. And again, Bertrand Russell was, was a classic, uh, orator. Uh, on on the global society he worked with five different major agencies that he claimed were given permission to to recreate uh, a kind of a new kind of culture for the west in stages to right up to the present day you're still living through some of those stages that these agencies set out through fashion industry even the miniskirt they came up with the idea and the promotion of sexual promiscuity uh, which would lead to the dissolution of the family unit and the fallout uh, for massive sexuality, uh, for, whether a loss of unwanted children or, or pregnancies. You would create an abortion industry, and that would tie right in with uh, Julian Huxley's position at UNESCO, where he said we'd have to devalue uh, ability, people's ability to discern themselves as being the, the pinnacle of life on the planet and take them off their pedestal and bring them down into the, the lower realms until human life itself is diminished. And that's what they did, very efficiently. And during it all, the people, the youngsters, well, they followed the, the changes step by step every, every few years, rapidly, rapid succession, um, all went in through this whole system thinking it was their system, thinking the culture was theirs, thinking they were somehow at the cutting edge, and they were creating um, the sexual revolution, they feel, and uh, and and they, they start the, the women's rights and so on. They very quickly morphed into um, abortion rights and so on. Uh, so step by step, they fulfilled the whole agenda that was written back in the 1940s. The better result touched upon. Quite fascinating, really, to me anyway. When you realise that's how the world is run. And we're still living through it. You know, you, things don't happen just by themselves on any level. Like Plato said, they, they can't, you can't allow it to happen spontaneously if it's not authorized, whatever change it might be. He said, in fact, Plato wanted even musicians, not just actors and playwrights and dramas to be licensed, but musicians as well, he said, because music can be, even then, could be used to stir the war like um, abilities innate within, especially young males. So, so music had always been used for, for warlike purposes. It gets the blood up and you get your, your happy warlike songs on the go and away you go. But also, it could, it, you could create discontent through anything that would attract the youth. It's hard to get the youth to sit and say, let's have a, here they are on a nice, nice island, eh? one of the Grecian islands, eh? And there's a school of philosophy. And, and they get beautiful weather, right? You've got uh, lovely blue skies and uh, uh, that, that deep blue, uh, greenish azure, azure color, I guess they call it, of the sea. And a nice warm breeze, eh? And, and you're having a great time yourself, if, if you're wealthy. And... And this is philosophy school, and your dad wants you to go there, you see. And he's paid this philosopher X amount of bucks to, because I mean, that's where, where school comes from, is the word is from a Greek word meaning leisure. So you, you need leisure to, to go to school, because the rest of the folk were too busy keeping the wealthy elite in, in comfort. 
And so they didn't have time to go to school. But here you are, as I say, here's this, this philosophy school saying, yada, 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 you know, and uh, let, let's, let's, don't just, what's the meaning of your life, right? Uh, and then it breaks off into a thousand different um, ideas, and everybody's arguing, and you get dialectics going, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, and you could have, you could either sit there for all day, uh, waiting for it all, or would have you heard someone playing a, a fancy little instrument, so maybe a harp, right? and singing some song that would get the foot tapping? Well, I guarantee you, any little boys and girls there would. Suddenly be over, especially someone their own age, you see. It doesn't matter if someone's created them as a, as a, an idol to follow, as they've always done in the music business. Um, but as long as they think it's theirs, and they're talking about, yeah, yeah, we're going to have our, it's our, talking about our generation, right? And, uh, <laughs> and that rebellion, and tapped in like, so, so sure, you can actually, so what they're going to chew, what are you going to do? So listen to some boring old philosopher. Or go and listen to this this guy singing about the injustices of life and all the things he'd love to and how angry he was because his hormones are jumping in and he doesn't know how to control things. So he's angry about everything and yada yada yada. And so they, they can all kind of relate to that in a way they go, well that, that technique's always been used and Plato talked about it that they should actually be licensed because it's a dangerous thing to society for the stability of society. Quite amazing really, eh? When you think about it, even way back then, that uh, Plato himself had to flee Greece in Athens. He had to flee uh, for quite a few years after Socrates died. And Socrates was his mentor. You know, and he, he was a mentor to, to quite a few philosophers, actually. And Aristotle, too. But Socrates was often put across to the public as being someone that they, they just picked on. He was just too bright for them, you know. And he had he, these outrageous ideas and so on and blah, blah, blah. And, but uh, it was much, much. And he was, then he was, he was asked to drink the hemlock. That was his sentence. That was his punishment. Well, his punishment, actually, if you look into the records that they talked about, was, was that he himself was teaching people or the students to to become like a, like a, almost like an army to for for insurrection against their parents. St- old techniques are still getting used today, in, in, in your face today, actually very open. The students don't know it, but if anybody else outside is watching, can see it. And uh, so Socrates died, and Plato and a bunch of them fled. In case they got hunted down because the, the, the ideas that had been taught and the techniques that had been taught of recruitment, training and so on were, were dangerous to the establishment of uh, Greece at that time or Athens. And you really think about it. I think that was probably a, a common thing that would happen in different countries actually. The more advanced, the, the more it would happen at the time. But, um, but Plato didn't understand. That's why he talked about licensing afterwards when he came back and he was, he got a good position of power himself. Uh, he understood that, that what he'd been taught himself, the power of, of art, uh, music, um, some poetry and, and stage plays. Hmm? Fascinating stuff really when you think about it. 
So nothing really changes. It's, it's, it's very powerful, powerful, powerful tool. I can remember going to high school and, um, and the first week I was there, some of the younger teachers there, some of these guys were, uh, just before class started, there were, and there was two, two of their freedom in the class, uh, just meeting, I guess, before the bell went off. And uh, we're all sitting there waiting for the bell to go off and, but they were chatting about music at the time. And they were having a debate about who the best female vocalists were at the time and who was getting pushed. They were having a kind of uh, little spat about who the best female vocalist was. But when I listened to them, it wasn't so much how good they were. It was they really, they knew, they were, they were very left-wing, and they knew that the techniques were going to be pushed in the songs and had been put across in their songs were kind of revolutionary type songs. And uh, and they understood that uh, they wanted to change everything, always for a socialist cause, supposedly for this equality uh, idea, you know, this strange idea of equality. That's never existed, even in the communist countries. But again, people who are that, that same age, they were the right age, young, you know, you know, they were teachers, and they, they still thought that uh, everyone was wrong, and no doubt a lot was wrong. But they didn't know the, the reasons for things all being wrong. They didn't know them, they themselves were getting programmed by a, a system that already controlled the culture industry. Very important. Like Gramsci said too. Gramsci was a, the communist who, um, taught some of the, 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 the big, big, uh, communists actually. And he's, and he said, and communism really is very, very old, an old idea. Especially the type that proliferated in, eventually in the 1800s, but it sort of pre-existed for quite some time. But Gramsci said and, and wrote about it, how to take over cultures, step by very slowly, step by very Fabian in a sense, until the culture is yours. You see, you, you've conquered it without them even realizing it, and that's the, that's the most powerful one of all. Now, with all the universities you've got, and uh, throughout the 20th century into the present century, teaching this kind of thing, and some of the higher courses too, they go into politics and social sciences, and but they went to, into the Leninist idea and also the, the Marxist ideas and the helpers, and they, they were all cognizant of Gramsci's teachings, which mean that uh, they understood. They obviously understood that a lot of uh, what... He would have, had taught already, had already happened, and they were all for it. Because the socialistic values, or the Marxist values, permeated all strata eventually of society. And eventually when the upper elite uh, come down with it too, uh, the pretty well won. That's when you see society breaking down. Because the old values are things that kept folks strong and wary against outsiders, or any philosophy coming in. To destroy as a, as a weapon of war, uh, you'd, you'd spot them. Well, those folk were gone then. You see, the, the, their own offspring had become so softened that they now were defenseless as well. And that's that's what you're seeing across a lot of the U.S. at the moment as well. And the folk don't know it, but it was well pl- uh, planned and, and orchestrated. But yeah, I think about uh, Plato at times is quite fascinating to to look into the, the ancient times and realize that some of these schools. We're, we're teaching the, the overthrow of the, the parents. 
And again, again, some of the, the schools and the, the, the Socrates had, and others ones had too. And this kind of loose brotherhood, you might call it, brought teaching the same thing. They brought young females in too. Some of them became almost like agents of, of modern uh, spy agencies. They, they literally were told how to eventually, how to um, seduce the, the older politicians, if you like, and uh, an important uh, nobility of, of ancient Greece, and, and uh, maybe even get hitched up to them, but definitely to influence them hmm? into a certain direction. I mean, it's fascinating, really, you see uh, how nefarious society has always been, in a way, <laughs> the human mind, eh? Uh, especially when it comes to power and politics, the human mind knows no bounds. But today you have corporations that are like countries. They are. And the, the corporations, unfortunately, also took over all businesses until they are the business. And the country is almost a tool for their labor and for their products, you know. Uh, that's, that's how bad it is now with corporations. And I gave the talks many years ago on that too. When Quigley, and Quigley by the way gave lectures as well. You might, have, I don't know if they're still out there, you can find them. But Quigley, Carl Quigley, uh, who was all for the agenda, he, did, he, he was an elitist himself and he didn't believe in democracy for the people. And he was all for the CFR agenda, you know, the Council of Foreign Relations and and it was all for them creating wars to get their objectives achieved, you know. But Quigley did say in Tragedy and Hope and other, other short notes he put out too, not, not that Tragedy and Hope's a short note, <laughs> but, but he did say in it that, that the corporations eventually will be the governmental system of the world. And the, and the CEOs of corporate, so it'll be a new feudal system with the CEOs and the new feudal overlords over the peoples of the world. Well, if you look at Facebook and all the other um, social media platforms and Google, you know, they, they, from the beginning, as far as I was concerned, I, I, I didn't want a computer. I knew what they were going to be for. I even did talk, uh, talk shows at the time on radio where I, I didn't, so I didn't have a computer. And I said what it was for. I said, these things aren't spontaneous. It's not self-made. People come out and just have these big organizations. They're all fronts. That's how the world is really run. And I said, they'll be used against you eventually. And, to, and sure enough, that's what you've got. So Quigley's predictions came True, because he was in the know of a lot of it too. He, he knew the folk in, who worked at ARPA, that became DARPA, and he knew the, the high-tech experts and where they went to the world. But he did say that, uh, yeah, the feudal overlords would, would be the CEOs of corporations. And you, you think about it. You see, in a feudal system, you don't have democracy in a feudal system. It's a hierarchy of what used to be nobility at one time. And uh, you'd have your reeve, you know, of, of a town or a little hamlet or whatever it happened to be. And you would have your, your, your sheriff as well. The sheriff is, is uh, the Shire Reef. That's where it supposedly comes from. I, I got my doubts about that too. I think it, maybe it's partly true, but. So you did a shire, and, and you did a reeve, a reeve of the shire, and that became a sheriff, supposedly. 
as English started to change. But you also had that coming from their wars, I think, in the Crusades as well. As far as I'm, I can think, uh, there's, a, there's a crossover between the, between the two cultures there when it comes to some of the, the namings of these places and these people and positions. But you're, you're definitely witnessing uh, an authoritarian system coming down the pike. And every, everybody I've mentioned before from years ago that were up there working and churning their books out at the CFR, it was a great source actually, because uh, many of the members in the CFR have their books churned out. For, I'm sure it goes written, but they're written in the vein of, of how this person talks and their ideas and so on. That's how the ghostwriters really work. And, um, but they, t- they tell, they told you an awful lot of truths of where they were going to take the world. Some of the ones actually, some of the best books were written during World War II by members uh, that were uh, traveling in the countries as they got so-called liberated. And before it too, that, that they met together in, the, in big panels in the U.S. and in Britain on how to create a, a post-World War II society for Europe, European countries and for Japan. And in the, in the U.S., I think it was Hopkins that uh, Roosevelt appointed to be in charge of a, a committee to create a, to create a post World War II culture for Germany and Japan before the wars were finished. Yeah. I mean, you would understand that we get simplified histories in school, but eh? it just starts. Bad man starts war. Uh, good countries go and fight bad man, and and then it's then it's over at the end of it, and now you got another enemy by that time in a cold war. Very simplistic stuff. You don't realise the massive organisations that war helped to spring up. Again, something that Quigley uh, related to as well. He, he mentioned that you get more done in five years of war in a social change. This kind of system where folks simply obey and actually the, the rights are suspended in war you're under war powers act and you all pull together for the common good we're all in it together that term and all these slogans that churn out and uh, and people put up with it you see rationing and everything else and social changes to change society and quickly also said that it doesn't matter what side you're on of combatant, uh, combatants you all change much the same uh, because they're, they're adopting the same changes throughout the war in order to survive. So that's why they like war, you see, or the threat of war, or the threat of mass extinction, like COVID, <laughs> uh, and that kind of thing, because you get so much done. And the World Economic Forum is doing exactly the same thing, as you well know, with this great reset. And all these organizations, uh, none of which you get to vote for, the United Nations, as an example, the World Health Organization that also takes funding from Bill Gates. <laughs> so it's not compromise, is it? And, um, and it goes on and on, this kind of system. So, uh, yeah, you're living through a massive, a massive plan. I, I wasn't even planning to go here tonight, but there you go. Uh, it's just the way it happens as my thoughts start to uh, take off by themselves. But... You're living through agendas. The whole point is you're living through agendas. Things aren't just spontaneous. Some of these agendas take many years to plan and further years to refine and then more years to, to game it to see 
if we do this, what would happen? And they go through all these different simulations of what might happen. They could throw it off and they try to eliminate things that might interfere. All in the game stage, basically, and the debating stage before they introduce it. And that's why they don't really feel. That's also why you see that no country is backing off that signed on to the agreements with the WHO and the various agreements after the 2004, they all signed on to the same, really their own national agreement. It's all the same agreement to do with dealing with pandemics and, and martial law type scenarios. Eh? They're all on board exactly, uh, pretty well, except maybe Sweden and a couple other ones. But otherwise, they're on board exactly with the same propaganda, in fact, using the same figures that they keep spouting out. And it doesn't matter in the country, the same figures and the same nonsense. And using the same psychological warfare divisions, by the way, uh, that give you your fear, like the SAGE group that, that in Britain that uh, has got a subgroup attached to them that comes up with the ideas on how to terrify you. And Lee actually said that if the folk won't comply, then the media, and hand it's a handout for the media, telling them to, to increase um, the story, exaggerate the stories and, and how severe it was, to, to scare them, to create more anxiety, and you're scaring them into compliance. Well, I don't know about you, but I would never, ever, um, ever, ever, ever <laughs> vote for any government that did that to me. I don't care what excuse to get for it. Never. I would never do that. This is all, all managed fear and terror. And when you couple that, I'll touch on it tonight too, perhaps. If you couple that with, um, with incredible suicides, uh, rates going up and up and up, uh, officially, they're really watching. This is a great experiment you're under right now, that as you're all studied and statistics or even statistics, how you control people's stats, 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 isn't it? And, uh, and it's fairly machines and computers that predict more things and more things going to happen, blah, blah, blah. But the suicide rate is definitely going up. And, uh, different age groups, but including young people, but then they're about 20, 21 to 24. Quite astonishing, really. And some, some, some stories of really decent young people who just can't see their friends and so on and they, 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 they kill themselves. Uh, how tragic, eh? It could all be avoided, because I say this is the first lockdown in the history of the planet where the healthy folk are locked, locked down, quarantined, <laughs> and businesses plummeted to the bottom, because it's meant to almost disappear, and you're supposed to go through the, the hardships of the Great Reset. The stuff they've been talking about for years, that I was talking about for years, by reading their articles and their, and their, I've got so much from the <laughs> articles saved over many, many years on this. And I gave talks on it. So to me, as I say, it's like Groundhog Day. I'm just repeating myself because I knew it would come to this. Not because I wanted it to come to this, but uh, they, they didn't be around the bush, you know. They talked about the fact that the people were ignoring their, their, their scary scenarios. They call them scary scenarios for climate change. I've got the articles from the, the, the big front groups that they use with the Friends of the Earth and so on, well-funded front groups that are meant to make the people think that, oh, there's thousands of people agreeing with them. No, they, they're all getting funded. Uh, you know, they just get funded. And uh, like everything else, and the followers are just disposable. They do their job they're disposed of. 
but they they talked about uh, the, the people aren't going to, aren't listening to us and they aren't cutting back on their consumption and blah 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 and, and there's a lot more still eating meat and and so on and so on. It's a huge, huge agenda, a meatless society, long before they, they came upon the idea of doing away with animals altogether. Yeah? They'd already planned a vegetarian type society. But again, it'd be mainly the, the vegetables owned and patented by the big genetically engineered companies, engineering, and the, the pesticide and herbicide industry, chemical industry. Because uh, all these corporations survive on us. So it's much better and efficient to get the government to sign any law that you must eat their food, you see. <laughs> it's beautiful, beautiful fascism, isn't it? Where government actually complies quite happily with them. Same with the vaccinations and everything else. Vaccinations, it can take years to show you what's wrong. The side effects, it doesn't matter, they say. And uh, they want to mandate it. Uh, even though you still have the Nuremberg Laws that came out from the Nuremberg trials, that human beings were not to be experimented with, and they couldn't do anything to them, anything in their body without their consent. Well, consent is supposed to be informed consent. You don't just say, oh, this is a flu shot, this is a COVID shot, and it's good for you. And you're supposed to disobey, and some nurse is going to grit their teeth because you won't comply and get angry, you know. No, that's not medicine. That's not medicine at all. Like everything is supposed to go through legal legalities, and you can't put anything in someone's body without their consent. Everything else you put in their body without their consent, you'd have up charges. If someone stuck heroin in someone's body and they didn't want it, I mean, the government itself would be hammering them for that, you know. But when it's, oh, it's for this corporation that we've signed, is we've signed it, you know, we've given them money. Your government has given them money. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, dear! Yeah. Fascism, fascism, and they've got to get rid of their products, eh? or because they want it ongoing. It's like light bulbs. The light bulbs went down, down, and down with their life expectancy of light bulbs. With international meetings of the manufacturers years ago, planned obsolescence because one or two companies were making bulbs that lasted for years, years and years. So they said, we can't make a profit like this. Uh, we can actually make bulbs that would last for the life of a person. But if you do that, then no one needs more bulbs eventually, or very few. And the companies go down. So you just make life of it shorter and shorter. Well, same with vaccines. and They want, they want guaranteed business. Because they've got all these shareholders, eh? And, and the shares go up and up and up. More folk want to get shares. Uh, and the more contracts that they have with government, with the companies. So they, yeah, it's great business, but they want pretty well predictable shares and, and predictable levels of income. So they want like annual vaccinations of all kinds, all through people's lives. Yep, there you go, eh? That's not fascism, it's to keep you safe and healthy, even though you can get viral interference and, and problems, um, when, when, even after vaccinations. If you hit the, the actual wild virus, as I like to call it, or even something that's similar in the wild, and you get a cytokine and storm, and that's you, you'll be dead pretty quickly without treatment. You know? This is all understood, but you're supposed to accept these vaccinations because someone, Lucy, like an idiot, you're an idiot, you see, what do you know? 
and they won't just pump it into you. See, that's what size, size come down to. But at one time, that, that folk had rice. Folk did have rice. And if they're not terrified, they'll accept them. They're right. But when they're terrified, a lot will cave in. Oh, oh save me, save me. Because they watch TV every day. The greatest propaganda tool ever devised. What can you do? But yeah, but again, now they've got their bioethics and their ethicists. And, well, you know, we've studied the law and, you know, it's, it's, it's quite legitimate to terrify the people to make them comply. And man, this is what they're telling us now, some articles like that. And I thought, oh my goodness, here we go, eh? Yeah. And it's interesting, if you just stand outside the box and, and outside yourself even, and look, look at it all you know, from the outside and, you look at the tyrannies, uh, how long did you even have, even in Britain, this idea of democracy? It was a pretty recent thing, wasn't it? Because up into the 20th century, it was certainly wasn't democratic. And even in World War I, uh, they hear about suffragettes, suffragettes. They never tell you that most of the men didn't have the vote either, because they didn't have property. The history is such an awful liar. Because you, you get authorized history, and, and everything's politicized for the present. So the topic of suffragettes, a lot of whom, by the way, were from wealthy families of revolutionaries who went over to to Moscow after the, the Bolshevik Revolution, and that's that's you, you can actually trace some of them. But facts don't matter eh? when you've got big agendas to to carry out and so on. And uh, yeah, most folks didn't have the votes, even in the U.S. I've mentioned before. After the War of Independence, they, they had debates about that. They, they didn't even want to give them a, a, what they did give the people to vote, rights to vote. They still wanted it to be landowners. And then, even then they argued about how much land you should own. They wanted big chunks of it. Yeah. But, so anyway, democracy, this idea of having, I mean, in the US, on paper, it was the first nation to give everyone rights. On paper. But what's the point of having them if you don't stand up for them? What, um, Jefferson mentioned it a few times. And so did uh, Franklin. You know. What kind of government have you given us? He says, a republic if you can keep it. So, uh, yeah. Bush Jr. said it too. Well, what's, what about the Constitution? When they were signing the Patriot Act and so on. When he told them, well, you'd sign it to all the, all the, all the, how, which I'm sure they're all quite happy to do, all the representatives sign it in the Congress without looking at it. He says, just sign it. If you, you won't be patriotic unless you sign it. So if you actually want you to look at it, you're not patriotic. So they all signed it. That's, that's, that's the official version, eh? <laughs> that goes down in the history. And you vote these prunes in. But Britain, Britain again is no, no better. It, it's, it's, it had all the, I've mentioned this before, just like today, if you look into all the, all the demands that are tacked on to loans from the US government and the World Bank, all based in the US, I at least the groups involved in them. And you look at all what they demand to do to change their cultures, which is the same as the West, you see, which has changed again. <laughs> And must, I mean, before you get the culture and, and pass this law and change it here and change it there and all the rest of it, that never used to be done. At least we're told that anyway. But I think it's always been here. 
And today, uh, look at the money that's been dished out to the people. And, and they're supposedly, governments are, you know, they're supposedly borrowing, like from the, from the Bank of England, billions of pounds. Millions then billions of pounds. Well, see, they're all with stipulations. And now that you're into the post-pretense democratic system in, in Britain, for instance, and in a lot, a lot of Europe, then you have all these different conditions on compliance. And the compliance are so going to do electronic, with electronic monitoring, passports, IDs, ID 2020 is one of them. Eh? And, um, and again, a, a post-democratic system where you be experts continuously all through your life into an austerity type of living. It's all come to pass. They planned it this way. They wrote books and books and books, but they taught it. And here you are. And Maurice Strong said it too, that he wouldn't be happier until they'd dismantled all the industrial uh, organized, uh, factories and so on, and, and industry left in the West. He wouldn't be happy until it was all completely Dismantled. Well, did did anybody vote for Murray Strong? Nope. Did you vote for the United Nations? Nope. Did you vote for the World Health Organization? Nope. Did you vote for the World Economic Forum? Nope. It gives you the Great Reset. They say, nope. You don't get to vote for any of these organizations, but they, like one big gang at the top, because the members often are, are, are the same members that belong to all organizations, some of the top ones, you see. And they've decided with their massive think tanks and with their, their advice of their think tanks and so of the world and how it's to be and, and it's the, the one that they want with their smart cities, which they control and everybody in it is controlled and actually owned by them. Because getting back to, to, the, to the money that the banks are supposed to dishing out, to pay people to stay at home under this guise of COVID, it is a universal basic income, and along with it come all the conditions. See, not initially, but it's going to be within, maybe before Christmas, so second, you've got to take these vaccinations, number one. You've got to get immunity passport, number two. Uh, but if you don't have all that, you check in with some counsellors, you see. Uh, maybe twice a week or something like that. Yeah, this is the new system uh, using a martial law type scenario to get it all through but uh, yeah the, the new it's not going to be free money for everybody so you can buy and play yourselves as to as to manage you all and to have you controlled and obedient to slaves go back in the ancient times and read about the house what slaves were the ownership of slaves through debt that was that's written. It was in the Old Testament too. If you can read through it, if you if if you get go into debt, you, know, you have to give yourself your own body there as, as a servant, a slave, and work for the master until it's paid off. If you can pay it off, but with compound interest, you'll never pay it off. It's not meant to be paid off. But also, any children that you had while you're a slave belong to the master as well. It's quite amazing, this stuff. And you, you can, people will get into arguments of who's to blame and blah, 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 and, and point fingers. But here's the reality of it. It, it. it wouldn't matter who's doing it. Because it's, it's all the same. You don't have to say, your children will be mine because you're in debt. But the children will be, there's anyway, corporations and banks anyway, 
Because um, your children are borrowing too, you see. And you're borrowing on behalf of the children. So you all these stipulations coming down the pike. And, for, and a lot of young folk think it's going to be great. Well, we won't have to do any work, you know. We can sit and play with our phones all day. And whatever else they want to do. That's what they think, yeah. Meanwhile, you have to go down into austerity. And I'm talking about radical austerity. Under the guise of saving the planet. Did you notice, did you notice that as soon as Biden, uh, supposedly, uh, was in the lead, regardless of nefarious means and all the rest of it, it doesn't matter, it really doesn't matter. Immediately, all the, all the different uh, main, main media that was all for Biden, because deep state again, as they call it, you know, immediately starts saying, oh good, he'll, he'll get us back on track with the, with the climate change agreements and back it to the Paris Accord and the, the, the conference of parties will be meeting again and they'll be cutting back on folks' ability to live in, in the country and all that kind of stuff, you know. Uh, all right back on track, this is what they're saying. That's what the CIA wanted, that's what the global intelligence agencies wanted, because uh, they're all one. And that's what top corporations all want to do. They're on board with it completely. Again, CEOs of big and corporate, big corporations are the new feudal overlords. And just like feudal overlords, as I say, they can censor you until you can't say anything. They own everything, you see. Oh, yeah. So they are overlords. You can't use your platforms. You can't do this. You can't do that. If you speak out against anything that they deem taboo, and if not, yeah, it's a mate, it's clear some new thing to boo tomorrow. But you're not allowed to give your opinion on anything because you'd be called a social influencer. And only their own social influencers are allowed to the big traditional corporations. They've been living on the tax money for years called news organizations because no one was interested in the garbage they've been churning out for the last 30, 40 years. <laughs> really? Yeah. But they're vital to a unified propaganda outlet with the same propaganda, unified you know, news um, across the world. So whoever you look at, they get the same stories, saying the same things, with the same opinions, you see. That's, that's how you control people. People can't think to themselves, they can't believe that anyone would go to this land to deceive them or control them. And that's why it works. It's because you don't think that. Because you're, you're probably decent people, you see. But psychopaths uh, have no problem doing that. Those folk who are bioethics and, and in the bioethics field and the ethics field, the new ethics field for humanity. This is, this is replaces religion, you see. It's a mixture of law and social sciences mixed with corporate agendas. You know, there's just, just too many people. Why don't you just hit 65, die, don't claim any money they have paid into for pensions, and let the government use that money on, on needful things, you see. Now, I'm not making this up. That came out from an Australian professor a few years back, who got all the coverage in the world, eh, from all the, all the Western media too. Oh, he actually said it. Of course he said it, because he was chosen to say it. That's how this, these things are put across to the general public. But... Uh, 
yeah, what you're living through right now is just the beginning of all. Now remember, you know, that's one hour past already, and I've even started. But uh, go to cuttingthroughthematrix.com, my website. So anyway, as I say, don't forget you're not alone and you can get in touch with me and so on. And even if I can get back to you, believe me, I read them all. And I know who, I know who is who. It's, it's very important. And again, send me a buck or two here, cuttingthroughthematrix.com. Well, hopefully we'll keep going on for, for a bit longer till, until they, they, they literally cut everything off, eh? Because there is no re, there's no redress to anything anymore. And when you have overlords and warlords running all the all media organizations, social media and everything, but there's no come, there's no court system here. You're going into the banana republic, eh? <laughs> That's where we're going and by intense. The plant, the plant post uh, democratic society. From myself, Alan Watchman, Tio Canada. This good night. May your God, or your God's go with you. Oh, flower of Scotland Will we see your likes again That fought and died for Yet we betell and glen And stood again Proud Edward's army And sent him home They think again The hills are bare Them leaves lie thick and still or land that's been lost now which those so dearly held had stood against him proud Edward's army and sent him Again, that fought and died for, yet we betell and glen and stood against him. Proud Edward's army and sent him home. Yeah.